Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, November 7th, 2014. to spend some time today preparing myself for sub-zero North Dakota winters. I've never, <laughs> I've never bought thermal underwear that's quite as padded before. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you stop, slow down, open up your Bible, and actually compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Because when you do that, uh, you're going to find that so many of the most popular pastors, teachers, authors, conference speakers that are put forward by what we lovingly refer to now here as the evangelical industrial complex. Uh, you know, the you, you go into your Lifeway bookstore, you go to your, your local Christian bookstore, and, you know, these are the, these are the books where the, where the cover of the book is a photograph oftentimes of the author. You know, Paula White, T.D. Jakes, I mean, the list goes on and on and on, uh, you know, when, what we do is we actually compare what they're saying, the, God, the Bible says, to what God's Word actually says. And over and again, over and again, we find that when you just apply a wee bit, a wee bit, it doesn't take much, a wee bit of biblical discernment, you know, maybe apply context, context, context. Understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. Understand that Scripture interprets Scripture. Understand, well, the simple fact that the Bible is about Jesus. When you apply these simple, basic, biblical, hermeneutical things to Scripture, what you find is, is that what these folks are saying, it just comes crumbling down. It's, in, you know, with a crash, and it's it, it's actually quite disconcerting, uh, disconcerting for a lot of reasons, but uh, disconcerting um, first and foremost because what's happening is deception on a mass market level. So this is mass marketing deception or mass market deception. And, uh, you know, just call me an old curmudgeon if you would. Call me that guy who just seems like he's just never happy with any. <laughs> and it's not true. It's not true that I'm not happy with with everybody and and uh, no in fact uh, you know i would argue that as a confessional lutheran i'm probably one of the most ecumenical guys out there um you know but th the thing is is i have like a zero tolerance policy when it comes to bible twisting and narcissistic eisegesis for this reason god's word does <laughs> you're thinking 
It does. Did you know that God's word has a zero tolerance policy for uh, for false doctrine? It's absolutely true. Let me remind you of a passage that I read quite often here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, Paul writes to a, a Titus, okay, and this is in the third of the uh, three pastoral epistles. Uh, First and Second Timothy are pastoral epistles, and Titus is a is a pastoral epistle. Here's what it says: To Titus, my true son in our common faith, Titus chapter one verse four, grace. Peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You can, yeah, elders here, you know, it's going to be those who are really pastors, you know, overseers of the church, if you would. And an elder must be blameless, husband of one wife. Yeah, that's right. No, no, no womanizers are allowed. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. In other words, uh, you know, the, the idea is these, these are fathers who, you know, married men who are faithful to their wives and faithful to the task of, of ex, well, uh, how do I put, catechizing their children, actually bringing them up in the faith, not letting them go hog wild and, you know, kind of, you know, catechize themselves, but actually, you know, do law and gospel there at home. And as, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, did you catch that? And An overseer is entrusted with whose work? God's work. God's work. And uh, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Mm-hmm. How many televangelists are known for pursuing dishonest gain? Well, see, that's the thing. When you lie in the name of God all in order to uh, get people to send in money, making promises uh, you know, about God that he never made, like send in your seed offering, sow your best seed now, and God's going to give you a double, triple portion, especially during the time of the Shemitah and the second of the four blood moons. I mean, that's all lying and blaspheming God's name in order you know, to gain dishonest money. Rather, an elder must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. And here's the fun part. He must hold firmly, firmly to the trustworthy word or message as it has been taught. Has been. Not <laughs> not changing it, modifying it. No, the trustworthy word as, it been, as it's been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it? Yeah. See, uh, uh, the pastor doesn't get to say, oh, you know, listen, you know, uh, I, my ministry is all about being positive. I, I don't want to tear nobody down. I, I don't want to be hating on nobody. No, I, I feel like the, the spirit is leading me to, you know, to be a lover, not a hater. You know, I, I need to build up the body of Christ. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be, you know, hating on anybody. <laughs> the scripture tells Pastors, that they are to refute those who oppose sound doctrine. Verse 10, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. And get this, it doesn't say get along with them, hey, listen, coexist. No, here's what it says. The, the, the deceivers must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach. Uh-huh. And that and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Yeah, get this. I mean, even before there was television, there were televangelists back back in the first century. Yeah, teaching yeah. Listen to what's what he says there again. You're ruining whole houses households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. 
Who would have thunk? Yet televangelists exist all the way back there before there were television. Now, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans, well, they're always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Watch the name calling there, Paul. You're going to hurt somebody's feelings. Don't you know you can't do that? You're supposed to be loving. Why are you calling them evil brutes and lazy gluttons? This, by the way, was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, well, this testimony about them is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the commands of those who reject the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rebuke them sharply. So that's that's what Scripture says. You know, the zero tolerance policy regarding false doctrine. Can you believe? I mean, God, it is it's just it's as if you know the truth matters to Him. <laughs> it does. And see, that's the thing. If you just stop and think about it for for a second here, the devil is the one who traffics in lies, not God. God cannot lie. God speaks the truth. And God's word tells us what? The truth. So when somebody starts making up doctrine and theology and twisting God's word, they're taking the truth and they're turning it into lies. God does not like this. In fact, um, his word is very clear that he despises this behavior and he will re- He will judge those who do these things. So what, is, what do we need to do if you're guilty of believing or teaching false doctrine? It's real simple. Repent. Repent. Jesus, well, not Jesus, but the, the, well, actually, you can say Jesus says it, but the Holy Spirit, it, you know, who is the same God as Jesus, inspired John to write in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Truth is not in us. That's right. If you think you don't have any sin, you're self-deceived. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he's just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you've if you're guilty of believing, teaching false doctrine, repent, repent, and be forgiven, because Christ has bled and died even for those sins. That's right. And so, and then you bear fruit in keeping with repentance and believing what God's word says. And so, here at Fighting for the Faith, I like to say from time to time, you got to remember this: I am a human being, and I don't ever want you to give me the benefit of the doubt. Nope. I don't want you to listen with an open mind. Nope, not at all. Listen with an open Bible. And if I'm saying things on this program that are challenging what you believe, chances are, and you know, this is my confidence here, chances are you've been taught something falsely. It's time for you to roll up your sleeves, open up your Bible, and take the challenge. See if what I'm saying is actually what God's Word says. That's that's the simple way of doing it. If, if what I'm saying is what God's Word says... Well, then believe God's word. You don't have to believe me. Believe God's word. But if I'm wrong, if I'm not rightly handling God's word, well, then roll up your sleeves, sharpen your pencil, send me an email, communicate to me, send up a flare, however you want to do it, and say, you know that Chris Roseboro guy, I, I think he he didn't rightly handle this text, and here's the reason why. And don't deviate from the script. What I mean is, if you're going to critique me, offer me a biblical critique. Here's what I think Chris wrongly understood this text. Here's how I think this text should be understood. Here's why. You know, that's the way to do it. So, all right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. It's Friday here, and we uh, we have a habit here at Fighting for the Faith. On Friday, we like to end the week off with a good sermon, and we're going to do that today. Um, somebody, you know, a listener sent me a link 
to a good sermon on Samson preached by, well, one of the friends of Fighting for the Faith here, Phil Johnson. Phil Johnson. Um, it, again, Phil is just a stellar guy, personal friend, and uh, just to have the ultimate respect for uh, him, his exegetical abilities. And uh, he's going to be delivering our good sermon at the end of the program today on, of all people, Samson. And, of course, Phil Johnson, not being a, a biblical neophyte, he does absolutely see the connection between Samson and Jesus, and yet he preaches Samson in a way where it's like Samson truly is a Christ figure, and he's a Christ figure with all kinds of warts. So it's a, <laughs> a good way to put it, the Christ figure with warts. Now, what what I like to, you know, the, Samson is one of those challenging figures, and the reason why he's challenging is because he shows up in the Great Hall of Faith passage in Hebrews chapter 11. Samson does. Yeah. I mean, he <laughs> he fulfilled the mission for which he was born. This is most certainly true. But when you look at his life, he's just the guy is a moral train wreck, an absolute moral train wreck. And the way I like to describe Samson is this way. I think Samson, because truly he is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ, uh, he typologically shows us the scandal of the cross, you think you know. You think about the fact that uh, the the cross, Jesus bleeding and dying on a cross as a condemned sinner, you know. And the the the, the Old Testament says, "Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree." There is God in human flesh, cursed, and this is a stumbling block for Jews, and it's foolishness to Greeks. And so, I think Samson encapsulates the scandalousness. Of the of the gospel and of the cross, and, and he does so typologically. But uh, I'll let uh, Phil Johnson fill you in on the rest of the details in uh, this good sermon that we're going to end the program uh, with here today at uh, Fighting for the Faith. But what we're going to do, we're going to start off our program with um, a uh, Heath Mooneyhan update. And oh man, Heath Mooneyhan is uh, uh, has started a new sermon series because he's back, you know. And uh, he's doing a sermon series on the entitled "The Walking Dead," the yeah, end, "The Walking Dead," and we're going to be listening to him kind of, you know, start to introduce the sermon series and stuff like that. And we're, it'll be a little bit of a longer segment uh, because I want you to listen to what he's doing here and why he's having a tough time with the Book of Romans, chapter twelve. There is a very specific reason why he's wrestling with Romans chapter 12 and can't really seem to come to peace with it. And so we'll be listening to Heath Mooneyhan. We'll take a break. When we come back, we have a Joel Osteen update. And this will be a little bit of a longer one. Um, and Joel Osteen, uh, I'm beginning to wonder if he's abandoning even attempting to preach the Bible at all, at least in the opening portion of what we're going to be hearing uh, from Joel Osteen today. Uh, it's the name of the uh, the name of the sermon is called "Be a Rainmaker." Be a Rainmaker, and no joke. In this sermon, he's creating dialogue between God and angels pertaining to you being a rainmaker, and it's mind-bogglingly bizarre. Um, but I'm beginning to think Joel Osteen. You know, I, I you know I, he might have to just jettison the "This is my Bible. I am what it says I am" spiel because <laughs> he's. Not making much of an attempt nowadays to even actually preach God's word. So, uh, yeah, it's bizarre what we're going to be listening to. I mean, just make up stuff and and uh, <laughs> you know call it Christian doctrine. But again, you know, he this is what he believes God, the Holy Spirit, is calling to. And like I said, in hour number two, we have a good sermon from 
uh, Phil Johnson. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable since we're going to be beginning with a, uh, a Heath Mooneyhan update. Well, let's play our Heath Mooneyhan update music. Here we go. So uh, we're going to be listening to uh, Heath Mooneyhan uh, preaching. And uh, what's funny is is that uh, he uh, recently was arrested for DWI. The announcement was made that he was going to be uh, you know, disciplined for uh, upwards to a year. And then after just a mere one month, he showed back up and is now preaching again out there at Ignite Church in uh, Joplin, Missouri. And he, it, what I uh, – the – well, how do I put this? I've received several emails, and uh, that's that is it's more than one and less than twenty, but uh, quite a few actually, uh, from people who um, work with former alcoholics um, and people like that. And uh, one email I received was actually an email from a police officer uh, who's you know arrested several people, you know many people who've been uh, drunk and things like that. And the emails I've received from people all say that um, that he Heath Mooneyhan, even after the arrest, even after him being disciplined, even after him being restored, he he sounds like he's slurring his words. And yeah, I don't know if that's the case or not. I mean, I don't know if he's still drinking, but it could, he's clearly not supposed to be. But anyway, so um, if he sounds like he's slurring, you know, his words to you, you know, I, you can email me. But you know, I. I have no ability to perform a breathalyzer test on him while watching these videos. So just keep that in mind. But anyway, as we listen to this, we're going to be listening to a sermon, the first sermon in a sermon series called The Walking Dead. It's about zombies. No joke. Um, so we're going to let him introduce the uh, the topic. And, uh, and then as he transitions into the Word of God, we're going to take a look at what is missing that uh, he doesn't understand uh, regarding Romans 12. Uh, in, well, he doesn't understand the proper distinction of law and gospel, and he doesn't understand what we call third use of the law. And, he, and one of the things I've noted over and again here at Fighting for the Faith is that evangelicals, for whatever reason, think that the book of Romans begins at Romans chapter 12, verse 1, like halfway through verse 1. But it doesn't. If you read the front end of the book, there's such great gospel in it. But they, it, it's, they don't have a context for it because they don't read things in context, which is a huge problem. But here's Heath Mooneyhan to uh, introduce the Walking Dead sermon series. And uh, we'll listen carefully to what he does with Romans 12. Here we go. Walking Dead. Um, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about where we're going in this series. Um, I'm not going to lie. I'm more excited about the next three weeks than about today's message. 
Um, you'll understand after a while. Uh, this is undoubtedly one of the most difficult messages that I've ever had to speak on. And so uh, everybody, the question's been going around all week. Uh, a lot of people's been asking, how in the world are you going to tie uh, anything biblical into a, a show called The Walking Dead? Um, how are we going to, because everybody loves zombies, don't you? I, like I fa- My question is not how are you going to weave the two together. My question is why would you want to? The job of a pastor is to preach the word. You clearly are using the Walking Dead sermon series as a means of you know, trying to make your church appear like you're relevant and cutting edge. You know, why don't you just lose all that nonsense and get to the business of preaching the word? About zombies, like, you know, I, I like the whatever, you know, I won't get into my therapy sessions with you. But uh, um, anyways, it, it's like a phenomenon that swept the country. Uh, this show is literally, it is, went down in history as the most watched show in the history of cable television. Um, it's in, incredible. Great storylines going on with it. I watched Which it. is probably the reason why he chose it for a sermon series. Because, you know, he wants to you know, basically ride their coattails, you know. Pretty regularly now, since the best show in history went off the air last year, that's Breaking Bad. Um, um, you know, Better Call Saul's coming around, so I like that. Um, but... Man, Breaking, or not Breaking Bad, but uh, Walking Dead, just a great show. Uh, the, you get enthralled with the characters and, and all that kind of stuff, and it's got twists and turns around every corner. And so, But I, I want to take this message, I want to call today's message Contaminated. Um, we're going to see how we can, we're, we're, I'm going I'm to land the plane today. You got to just stick with me, though. Uh, you know, zombies, have you ever, we're going to, today we're going to learn how you go navigate through life. Does it ever seem like you go through life where everybody that you encounter seems to want to just take a bite out of you? You know, like just, they want nothing more than to drain your brain. This is what zombies do. They, they, they just want to drain your brain. In, in the show, they call the zombies walkers. That's literally what they do. It's zombies are, are slow. Don't watch World War Z because those are fast zombies. Is that fast zombies are straight from hell, and we don't like fast zombies. We like slow zombies. We call them walkers. We like walkers, not runners. All right, because I'm fat, and uh, <laughs> yeah, this is going nowhere. And uh, no, just kidding. Uh, yeah, really, it is. Whether you were kidding or not, I mean, what does this have to do with Christian doctrine, God's word, Christ and Him crucified for our sins? Yeah, it's beyond me. The zombies are—they—they they call them walkers, but they ought. They, sometimes, every once in a while, they'll be by themselves, but they like to travel in herds. They call them herds, and they can literally—you see how they can overtake and overpower everything. Walkers, they're only purpose and existence is to hunt and to feed. That's it. That's all they want to do. They want to drain other people so they can survive. They, their survival is based off of their ability to drain other people. And so we have two types of people in the show, and we have two types of people in life. We have people, you have infected people, and then you have invested people. 
So infected people are obviously the walkers and the zombies, whatever you want to call them. The invested people, these are people that we would call that believe in hope, that are searching for a solution, um, that, are, that believe that the answer is out there. And so they're, they're trying to find answers. They're trying to, to survive. To, to, we're going to talk about building communities and stuff like this later on. But they're just literally trying to invest into the betterment of humanity. And so we have to ask this question, though. <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? I mean, this isn't even like a lucid introduction. Are we part of the problem? Or are we part of the solution? The zombie problem? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And we're going to investigate some scripture today. Read it. Uh, You ever just read the Bible and just wish that you didn't? Now, this is quite autobiographical, which also tells me he doesn't understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. But let's continue. And I don't mean that in like a weird sort of way. I'm just, there's parts of the Bible that I read that just go, ouch. And, but we're really good at justifying certain things in our life, aren't we? I'll just speak from my perspective today. So today, this, this message may not hurt you, but it hurts me deeply. I'm the best at taking scriptures. And you go like on a treasure hunt of scriptures, don't you? Do you ever just like, are you ever like mad and so you just get into Proverbs? I do. I was getting mad in Proverbs. But let me tell you what happens when I get mad and I get into Proverbs. I'm like, don't like what that says, don't like what that says. Aha! That one can go on Twitter. You laugh because you've done it too. We're really good sometimes at, at uh, all, all we want to do in our lives. Like we'll travel in herds, won't we? Because all we really want to do is justify the way that we feel. And then we read scriptures like this. Romans chapter 12. The whole chapter's rough. The whole chapter's rough. Now, just... I'm going to pause for a second here because, you know, again, I wanted you to pay attention to what he does with Romans chapter 12. Let's look at it. Okay, Romans chapter 12. Here's what it says. Now, notice we're 12 chapters into Romans. 12. And uh, keep in mind, the, uh, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers, those were all added fairly recently in church history. That was an apparatus that makes it a lot easier to get to particular places in Scripture. And so, you know, imagine your Bible without any chapter numbers and without any verse numbers. You know, it would be like, well, then you say, well, if that were the case, then it would be like starting two-thirds of the way into the the book of Romans. Right, two-thirds of the way in. What happened in the... uh, in the other two-thirds before you got to chapter 12? Well, a lot did, but listen to what Romans chapter 12 starts with. Here's what it says, and uh, there's an important word. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. Uh huh. The NIV begins with, yeah, get, watch what the NIV does, therefore I urge you, brothers. It begins with the word, therefore. 
So, <clears throat> so listen again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So the appeal is by or because of the mercies of God. Where do we hear about the mercies of God in the book of Romans? Well, in all of the preceding chapters. That's where we hear it. So like in Romans chapter 3, you know, 3, 4, 5, 6, you know, 7, 8, nine, I mean, it's amazing. It's all So the, when Paul says, I therefore appeal to you in light of God's mercy, his mercies, he's talking about all the mercies in the gospel that he's been preaching in the previous portion of the book. So uh, here's, let me give you an example. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. See, Paul says, so what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we've all uh, already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, they're under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. It's a terrible picture, right? And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. Shut up. That's what it's based on. So that every mouth may be shut up and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is the purpose of the law. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. That means to be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to us. The righteousness of God that's through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that means to be declared righteous, in God's sight as by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He had passed over their former sins. So here's the idea is, is that Paul talks about God's mercies at length, at length in uh, Romans chapter, you know, three, four, five, six, seven. You, you get what I'm saying here. So when, you know, by the time you get to chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God in light of the gospel to present your bodies as living sacrifice. So Romans 12 would fall under the category what we call third use or third function of the law. These are the therefores of the gospel. Therefore, having been set free from slavery to sin, to death and the devil, how ought we to walk as Christians? Paul then goes on to say, I present your body in light of God's mercy, in light of the gospel, in light of the good news that your sins have been forgiven by Christ, that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Therefore, now present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It is already holy because of what Christ has done, which is your spiritual worship. So... Because you are set free in Christ and forgiven by God, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, what is good, acceptable, and perfect will is. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving uh, the one who... Uh, in our serving, if the one who teaches in his teaching, one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So let love be genuine. Why? In light of God's mercy, because you're forgiven in Christ. Let your love be genuine. Abhor what's evil. Hold fast to what's good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And bless those who persecute you. Bless those and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Why? In light of God's mercy, in light of the Gospels. You see, when you take the Gospel out of it and you just get all of these exhortations, you're sitting there going, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not living up to that. Yeah, but when the law is silenced by the Gospel and you know that you have a right standing before God because of what Christ has done, ah, now you know that what Paul is describing here is what is true freedom as a Christian. Freedom from slavery to sin. So, you know, it's fascinating to me that as we listen to this, Heath Mooneyhan is kind of wrecked by Romans chapter 12, which means that this isn't third use of the law for him. It's first use. This this law here in Romans 12, he's not looking at it in light of Christ's mercy. It's basically condemning him. So, we, you know, what what should be by this point third use, third function of the law, um, Heath, because he's divorced it from the gospel, he's just getting wrecked by it, and it's condemning him. Yeah, we continue. Take a few of them. Start in verse 9. It says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. If I didn't say another word, that'll preach. Like this whole, like every sentence is just another kick in the gut. Don't just pretend to love others. In other words, don't just go to church. Right? Crap, I met you all in the lobby a while ago. Aren't we all just like, eh, how you doing? Man, it's so good to see you. Don't just pretend to love other people. Really love others. Yeah, but Romans 12 is in light of God's mercy because of the gospel. Love one another. Take that little bit out. This just turns into hammering, 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 and condemning law. And it's and he described it right. It's a kick in the gut. Yeah, well, that's what the law does without the gospel. We continue. Hate wrong, hold tightly to what is good, love each other with genuine affection, and take delight in honoring each other. Take delight in honoring each other. Honor is something that's just so far removed from our society today. You say, well, you don't, they don't deserve that. Uh, 
Wives and husbands, we don't honor our spouses a lot because we think that, oh, well, they didn't earn that. Honor doesn't have to be earned. Honor is something that's just given. When's the last time we took true delight in honoring other people? Never be lazy. I repeat. He's reading from the New Living Translation. Never be lazy, but work hard. And serve the Lord enthusiastically. Now again, notice as he's reading this, you know, the context is that this is all in light of the gospel. Uh, So, you know, this is kind of serving a third use of the law function in the text. And this is all hitting him squarely between the eyeballs as, you know, second use, which is the condemning use. Fascinating to listen to. Where's the gospel here, uh, Heath? I've talked to some people. It's like, man, I was all in. I'm in here. I just can't do that servant thing. Seems like all you want to do is people to serve and love and each other and stuff like that. I know it's weird. It sounds weird, doesn't it? It says, rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be ready. Be ready for what? Be ready to help God's people. Well, if if they're God's people, they won't. No, listen, God's people are in need sometimes. God's going to use you to help his people. Be ready to help. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Be eager, be excited. Anticipate to show and practice hospitality. So I'm all right with this. Kind of. Kind of okay. But again, that whole list is in light of God's mercy. Hmm. You leave the gospel out, you get to a list like that. (laughs) Might as well be, you know, the Ten Commandments with the thunders of Sinai. Then it starts getting rough. Bless those who persecute you. Hmm. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. What? No, I'm just being honest. Are you kidding me? Oh, I, I, listen, because I'm really good. Anytime I say I today, I'm really meaning we. But I don't want to hurt you that bad because I want you to come back. So I'm going to say I. Even he understands that this is, this is killing law here. Again, where is the gospel? Because Paul said, therefore, in light of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. I'm really good at finding the parts I like. Oh, pray for your enemies? Sweet. Let's go old school, baby. 
God, I pray that you rain fire down on them. Kill their puppies. I don't like this scripture. Because this says, don't curse them, pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. I think you get what's going on there. It's, it's painful to listen to. But if you don't properly understand law and gospel and you don't keep things in their context, you, you're going to just end up just condemning people and not giving them any hope. So he sits there and says, I don't know. I don't like these passages. You know, Well, yeah, because you're not reading that passage in light of God's mercy. And that's the thing that makes the, all the difference in the world. Now that you have been forgiven by God, have received mercy and grace because of what Christ has done for you. And it's all by grace through faith. You know, now and therefore, in light of God's mercies, walk in freedom of the gospel. Walk in freedom. And here's what freedom looks like. Yeah, that's a different flavor altogether than the the dish that uh, Keith Mooneyhan was dishing up there. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end up uh, the first hour with a Joel Osteen update about being a rainmaker. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but see if uh, Joel can explain it to us from the Bible. <laughs> Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? 
Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm. I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to believe that Joel Osteen actually doesn't teach what God's Word says. And that's a good thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us, by the way. So if you're not already a crew member, head on over to the website, join our crew. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota. Yeah, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself in uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy, fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. All right, that's uh, Chip Skylark and Shiny Teeth and Me, our Joel Osteen update music. Now, what we're going to be listening to is a message by Joel Osteen entitled, Be a Rainmaker. And what is 
quite disturbing, as if Joel Osteen's teaching isn't disturbing in and of itself. What is disturbing about this particular message from Joel Osteen is the fact that um, he really doesn't actually teach anything from God's Word, at least not in the opening part of it. In fact, he creates, no joke, dialogue between himself, God, God, and uh, and an angel. So, yeah, so be a rainmaker. Are you a rainmaker? Do you know what a rainmaker is? Well, let's uh, hear Joel Osteen and see what he says about this, uh, uh, well, you know, very important biblical doctrine. Here we go. Discover the sinner in you. Well, God bless you. It's a joy to come into your homes. And if you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. But thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you again for coming out. And I like to start with something funny. And I heard about these two men named Archie and Jack. They argued their whole life as to whether Jesus was white or whether he was black. Archie was certain he was white. Jack was just as sure that he was black. As fate would have it, they died on the same day, rushed to the pearly gates, said, St. Peter, please tell us. We've been debating our whole life. Is Jesus white or is he black? About that time, Jesus stepped up and said, buenos dias. (laughs) Yeah, weird joke. Wouldn't Jesus say shalom? You know what I'm saying? No, moving along. Hold up your Bible. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. No, you won't. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. I want to talk to you today about being a rainmaker. Just stop right there. I mean, can you point me to the rainmaker passages, you know, where God says, you know, And uh, thus saith the Lord, those who are redeemed by the shed blood of Christ, my will for you is that you be a rainmaker. It's like, what? You know, what's funny is I remember when the term rainmaker uh, was the uh, in vogue term in the corporate world. Now, back in the day, I used to work in corporate America and, uh, you know, was a a director of uh, marketing. And I remember, you know, I traveled to Silicon Valley with my boss to uh, to talk, you know, find venture capital for a a start, you know, a startup project that we were working on, a technology thing. And uh, we were at uh, who, who, Guy Kawasaki. He he's the he actually has a a technological venture capital group. And um, so we went to his uh, seminar and, you know, heard all about how to, you know, get raise venture capital for technological startups and things like that. And um, and afterwards, you know, I actually met with one of the people on Guy Kawasaki's team and uh, (laughs) she she was asking me questions and it's like. I didn't know what she was saying. She, you know, she'd say, "So, uh, you know, uh, you know, w- tell me about your your company's marketing." I mean, you, and I, you know, I told her the problem that we were having at the time. She says, "Well, it sounds to me like you need a rainmaker." And I was, <laughs> I didn't want to seem stupid, so I, I said, "Yeah, that w- wow, we really do need one of those rainmakers." <laughs> but I mean. What? I mean, I, I I can tell you what a salesperson is. I can tell you what a marketing person is. I can tell you what a VP and an exec and 
you know, and, you know, I can tell you what a secretary, but a rainmaker never heard that term. And that was I mean, the time when it's like technological companies were like inventing their own titles, you know, you know, and just, you know, what's a rainmaker? Anyway, so here's Joel Osteen, you know, said, I want to talk to you today about being a rainmaker. I'm still, you know, 12, 15 years later going, what's a rainmaker? We continue. Rain in the scripture is symbolic of blessings, favor, increase. One place talks about how we should be like a well-watered garden, always in blossom. We should be. Notice this is like a law now, you know. You must be a well-watered garden. You know, you're sitting there going, if I'm not, is God mad at me? It's like utter confusion of law and gospel. Here we go again. That's the way God designed us, to flourish even in tough times. But too many people are in a dry season. They haven't had a good break in years. They're stagnant in their marriage. They're not moving toward their dreams. Yeah, you're not. See, if you're not moving towards your dreams, God's probably going to send you to hell. I mean, this is what God wants you to do. You need to be moving towards your dreams, but you're in a dry season. You should be like a well-watered garden. It's like, ah, quick, what's the solution for the sin of not moving towards my dream? And it's easy to settle there. Think, well, this is as good as it gets. I'll just learn to live with it. But there is a way you can put an end to that drought. Really? And how would that be? There's something you can do to cause it to rain. There is? Where does the Bible say that? And it's interesting how a cloud forms. Yeah. The sun shines down on water. Yeah, you're not taking me to a biblical text. Instead, you're going to go to you know, explaining to me the physical ways in which clouds are formed. What does this have to do with what you just said? And it produces an invisible vapor. These vapors condense and eventually rise up into the sky. You know, for years, my wife has accused me of creating invisible vapors and form clouds. When enough vapors go up, the water becomes too heavy for the cloud to hold and it begins to drip out. That's when it sprinkles and mist. If the cloud gets so full of condensation, so full of these vapors, then it will open up and begin to downpour rain. The point I want us to see is the water didn't start in the sky. It started on the ground. So what? Who cares if it started in the sky, on the ground, in the ocean? What does this have to do with, I better get moving forward with my dreams because, you know, God wants me to be a well-watered garden, you know? The amount of vapors that went up determined how much rain came back down. Yeah. The way we can create rain in our own life. The way we can put an end to a drought is through our praise. Uh Uh-huh. So where does it say in Scripture that our praise creates an invisible vapor that creates clouds that cause it to rain God's blessings on our life? I'm not familiar with that text. When we go around thanking God for His goodness, talking about what He's done, our praise is the invisible vapor that goes up into the heavens and forms a cloud. I mean, does he just write his own Bible now? I mean, where is he getting this? He's just making stuff up at this point. Didn't you tell people to hold up their Bibles and you said they today will be taught the word of God? This isn't the word of God. I don't know what this is. When your cloud gets so full of praise, so full of thanksgiving, 
so full of you bragging on the greatness of God, it can't hold it anymore. That's when it will rain down right back on you. So the reason you want me to praise God is so that I can get things from God. Doesn't that sound like the ultimately, that's like the ultimate selfish reason to praise God? Oh man, let me think about this. Okay, so you know, I, I, I'm needing some, you know, some really expensive warm weather gear because I've moved to North Dakota, you know, and uh, you know, and it's time to get, you know, we we, we got to get the the truck, you know, winterized and stuff like that. And looking at the bank account, going, mm, okay, this is gonna be a stretch. So I know, I know, I got a solution. You know what I need? I need some of that God's rain stuff. So. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to I'm going to start praising God, and and, and you know what you know what God's going to do is God's going to sit there and go, oh, time to make it rain on that boy. Yeah. So the reason I'm praising God is so that I can get stuff from Him. Yeah. That that doesn't that defeat the whole thing of what praise is? Yeah. See, in in the the way Scripture kind of works in the praise category, God is the one who moves first. He redeems he forgives he upholds he sustains our response is thankfulness and praise here it's like completely backwards i'm going to praise god so that i can get from him that's not praise that's just ultimate you know it's some kind of a you know it it's some kind of way to dupe god into getting what you want from him Blessings, favor, increase, healing. You can become a rainmaker. You've heard the saying, when the praises go up, the blessings come back down. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I don't think that one's in the Bible. When the praises go up, the blessings come down. Is that in the Proverbs? Where did you find that? I mean, it's probably right next to that verse that says, God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, it's not in the Bible. Now, if you're not seeing any good breaks, if you're in a drought, my encouragement is check up on what you're sending up. Here's the principle. No praise, no rain. This is terrible. I mean, how do you explain how pagans have so much money then? You know, (laughs) they ain't praising God. Where are they getting all that rain from? Limited praise, limited rain. You might get a sprinkle, a little drizzle every once in a while, good break here and there. But if you want to see a downpour, a Texas-sized rain. Yeah, you want to see a Texas-sized rain, you can make that happen. All you got to do is, you know, send up some praise and then it'll just come flooding down. The exceeding greatness of God's favor. You've got to stay full of praise. Everywhere you go, under your breath, you're always thanking God for his goodness. When you wake up in the morning, Lord, thank you for another beautiful day. Yeah, but the only reason you're thanking him is because you want something from him. You're trying to butter him up. What's happening? Your cloud is getting a little bit fuller. When you see your children, Lord, thank you for these gifts that you bless me with. Driving to work, not complaining about the traffic. I can't stand my job. Gasoline is so high. No, Lord, thank you that I have a job. Thank you that I have a car to sit in traffic. Thank you that I have money for gasoline. Thank you that I'm healthy enough to go to work. Lord, thank you for my gifts and talents. God, I'm just grateful to be alive. When you live like that, you better get your umbrella out. It's just a matter of time before your cloud will open up and unload a downpour of God's favor. Yeah, how could you say such a thing without any biblical text that actually teach this? 
<laughs> where in Scripture are we commanded to selfishly praise God because we want stuff from Him? Abundant praise will produce abundant rain. Yeah. Um, where's that mathematical formula in the Bible again? The amount you send up is the amount that's going to come back down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's so confident about this. Again, ain't no biblical text that says it. Now, some people only give God praise on Sunday. Joel, I went to church. I sang three songs, stood the whole time, sat through the whole message, missed the first half of the football game. It was a big sacrifice. That's great. God sees your efforts. But here's the problem with only having Sunday praise. Yeah, you got to do more than that. You see, God wants Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday praise too. If you, you want that, that cloud of blessing to start breaking forth with rain, yeah, you, you better start ponying up because, you know, God only works if you, if you praise him. On Monday, when you need a good break, on Tuesday, when you need wisdom, God says to the angel, he needs some rain. Help him out. Give him some favor. Increase promotion. The angel says, we tried, but there's nothing in his cloud. <laughs> Where's that dialogue between God and an angel found in Scripture? God's, please help that poor guy out. The angel says, oh, we tried, but they're, they're, nope, they're, there's no praise coming up. So we can't make a cloud to rain on him. This is sick. This is crazy that anybody there... By the way, the, the, I should tell you this. If you ever watch Joel Osteen's videos online, and now all of his teachings are available online. You don't have to sign in or anything. Go to joelosteen.com, click on messages, and you know, click on watch online. The, you know, there's this one guy that they show every single week, and he's sitting there. You know, he's at the end of the aisle. He's you know, and he's got glasses on, and he's got an open Bible and a highlighter in his hand. And my question is, why does that guy have an open Bible and a highlighter in his hand at Joel Osteen's, you know, Lakewood? Because Joel Osteen isn't actually teaching anything from Scripture. Not here. I, the guy doesn't actually teach God's Word. I mean, now he's just making stuff up. God wants to help you. But the angel says, oh, no, can't. Can't help him, God, because there ain't no invisible vapor coming up in the form of praise creating a cloud in his life, you know. Well, wish we could, but we can't. Our hands are tied here, God. He got a little drizzle on Sunday, a little sprinkle. Now it's completely empty. Friends, you got to do your part and keep your cloud filled up all through the day. Why are people applauding this? This is not biblical teaching. Instead of thinking about what's wrong, thank God for what's right. When you're in a tough time, instead of being discouraged, instead of complaining, no, Lord, thank you that you're turning it around. Thank you that you're bigger than this problem. Thank you that you've given me grace for every season. Even in small things, you get a good parking spot. Lord, thank you for your favor. Vapors went up. At the mall, you find what you were looking for. Lord, thank you for directing my steps. More vapors are rising. Yeah, quick, remember to do all that stuff so you can fill that cloud up so you can get more rain from God. You, know? you see a friend that's not feeling well. After you pray for them under your breath... Lord, thank you that I'm healthy. Thank you that I can breathe without pain. You walk outside in the morning. Lord, thank you for the sunrise. Thank you for the beauty of your creation. Eating dinner with friends. Lord, thank you for the people you put in my life. Thank you for my friends. If you're going to reach your highest potential, you've got to become a rainmaker. Uh -huh. Do I need to go on? 
I mean, did you hear a single biblical text that actually supported any of this nonsense that we're hearing from Joel Osteen? There isn't a single biblical text that actually teaches any of the things that Joel Osteen is saying. In fact, what he's doing is creating up a mythological doctrine, scratching, itching ears. But if you actually would take the time to think about what he's saying, this isn't praise at all. This is just buttering God up so that you can get what you want from him. Turns God into a senile old grandpa in the sky. Maybe you can trick him by sending up some invisible prayer vapor and praise vapor and fill a cloud up so that he can bless you. I mean, this is not what God's word says at all. It's absolutely demonic what it is that we're hearing from him. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a good sermon from Phil Johnson on Samson. That's right, messianic figure from the Old Testament with a lot of words. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. Listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the force. You mean Metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey, have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end off the week with a good sermon from Phil Johnson. Details forthwith.
good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Grace Life out in Valencia, California. Pastor Phil Johnson presiding. The name of the sermon is The Strength and Weaknesses of Samson. And he's going to be preaching his way through Judges chapter 14. And you'll notice here, Phil Johnson recognizes that Samson actually succeeded. And he points us to how this connects to the gospel and our own need for salvation. As a messianic type in the Old Testament, Samson is not without problems. I think that's kind of the point, too. So I think Phil Johnson does a good job of actually teasing out in depth you know, how this all works. So let me go ahead and back off the music here. And without any further ado, here's our good sermon to end the week off, The Strength and the Weaknesses of Samson by Phil Johnson. Here we go. I want to go back this morning and look at the life of Samson from Judges chapter 14. You can be turning there. Judges 14. One of the saddest chapters in all of Scripture is the story of Samson. He was a man with tremendous potential. He had godly parents supernatural strength, the Lord's favor. He literally had more gifts and more advantages than anyone else in his era. He was born and called and used by God to serve as a living illustration of divine deliverance. And in that sense, he he prefigures Christ as a deliverer. His birth was supernatural. He suffered for the sake of his people. Everything about him was amazing. He's he's very much a Messiah figure in every way but one. And it's this, he was not particularly faithful. Scripture records for us several disastrous failures, spiritual lapses in his life. He was especially prone to the kind of carnal failure that stems from unbridled lust blended with a lack of personal discipline. He was a passionate man, but he couldn't control his fleshly lusts, and he was a strong-willed man. And that's a bad combination. Always leads to disaster. And the fact is, if we looked only at Samson's personal character or the external evidence of his sanctification or lack of sanctification, we would almost certainly conclude that Samson was a miserable failure, an unbeliever, a wicked man. He's a classic example of wasted opportunity. And he's a vivid reminder to us that mortal men are totally depraved and we are all in desperate need of a deliverer. And yet, Samson himself was a great deliverer. And so he stands both as a warning about the dangers of compromise and worldliness... And yet, at the same time, he is a living emblem of deliverance and a reminder that God's grace is greater than all our sin. That's really the lesson of his life. God's grace is greater than our sin. You know, Samson is expressly named in Hebrews eleven thirty-two. He's listed among the heroes of faith. And that's significant. Samson is a hero... Not because of what he did, and certainly not because of what he failed to do, but he's a hero, and not because of his supernatural strength. He's a hero because of his faith. And I want you to keep that in mind as we consider his life. It's an interesting fact that Scripture never tries to whitewash 
the heroes of the faith. The Bible always paints these men realistically, even when the truth about them is negative. There's no need to paper over Samson's sin because the point is to glorify God, not Samson. And when you read of Samson's great feats of strength, we're not supposed to gasp and wonder at the strength of a man. We're supposed to glorify God, who was the source of that strength. Samson was a man of great physical strength. That's the thing we always remember about him. But he was also a man of great moral weakness. And when we read in Scripture about his moral failures, the lesson we're supposed to draw from his life is not primarily a lesson about human failure. It's a marvelous example of the wonder of divine grace, which is capable of winning unimaginable victory in the midst of the most crushing kind of defeat. In other words, the Bible never shies away from telling us about the failures of our spiritual ancestors because the thing Scripture is aiming to highlight is the grace of God, not the piety of people. And if you lose sight of that distinction, you will miss the whole point of the gospel because the gospel itself is the good news about what Christ has done to redeem us. It's not a list of duties we're supposed to perform for him. The gospel is about what he does for us, not about what we do for him. It's about the righteousness of Christ, not about our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, which is provided by grace through faith for sinners who have no real righteousness of their own. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, Jesus said. And throughout Samson's life, he kept manifesting the symptoms of sin sickness. We know from the fact that he's listed in Hebrews 11 that he was a redeemed man. But he continually got entangled in the sins of the flesh, and he stumbled again and again. For one thing, at times he became too friendly with the Philistines, too familiar with them. They were the ones oppressing Israel, and they were out to destroy Samson. But he kept palling around with them. And that's a perfect metaphor for the sins in his life. He kept fraternizing with fleshly activities that he ought to have been mortifying, putting to death. And ultimately, his playing around with those sins cost him his eyesight, his freedom, and ultimately his life. The great Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen famously said, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. And Samson's life is a perfect illustration of that principle. Now, I'm assuming most of you are pretty familiar with the story of Samson and Delilah. It's ugly. Judges 16 starts with Samson consorting with a prostitute in Gaza. That's a Philistine city, by the way, and they, they hear that he is in their city consorting with this prostitute, and they lay in wait to kill him. And by God's grace, he escapes that threat, but no sooner has he escaped that threat than he takes up this ungodly affair, extended affair, with Delilah. She's a Philistine woman and a, and a pagan, and she's a snare to him in every way. And so this is the culmination of a pattern of ungodly behavior on Samson's part. 
Delilah wasn't the first wicked woman he consorted with. She was, as I said, a Philistine woman, a pagan, and she nagged him and tricked him into revealing the source of his strength. You know this story. And by the way, the the issue was not really his hair, as if there was some magic in the tresses, you know. The real secret of his strength lay in his devotion to God, which was bound up in an oath that forbid him to cut his hair. And so Delilah, you know, cut his hair while he was sleeping, and the Philistines came and captured him, and his strength left him because he violated the vow. And the Philistines tortured him and put his eyes out and enslaved him and finally put him to death. And all of that part of the story is, I'm sure, familiar to you. But in Samson's death, we see the whole lesson of his life, how God graciously turns human failure into divine victory. You know, he pushed down the, the supports of that house and, and in one fell swoop killed a, a lot of Philistines, but he died also in the process. It's a great picture of redemption and divine deliverance and triumph despite the awfulness of human depravity. And that whole story used to fascinate me when I was a young boy. I think it fascinates all boys, and maybe all men for that matter. We, we like the story of Samson, how, you know, in his very death throes, with his eyes gouged out, his life ebbing from him, he one last time prays to God, and the Lord restores his supernatural strength. And so there he is, blinded, put on public display, tortured, humiliated, and in bondage, and he begs God to restore to him his supernatural strength. The Lord hears, restores his strength, and Samson pulls down the pillars of that stadium, and the collapse of that thing killed all at once 3,000 Philistines. Judges 16, verse 30 says, So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. It's an amazing story. But that's just a quick summary of Judges 16, and that's the part of Samson's story you're already familiar with. I want this morning to go back two chapters and turn, as I said, to Judges 14. And let's look at a different earlier era in Samson's life. We're going to meet Samson as a young man, and here we see how he laid the foundation for failure in his later life. This chapter, Judges 14 chronicles three serious mistakes Samson made in his youth that determined the whole course of his life and ministry and laid the foundation for the tragedy that would end his life. First, some historical background. You know, Samson lived in the era of the Old Testament judges, after Moses, after Joshua, but before the establishment of the kingdom. The book of Judges repeatedly says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. You'll find that statement in Judges 17.6 and also in Judges 21.25. And those were, for the most part, dark days in the history of Israel, punctuated by just a few bright episodes in which God sovereignly raised up deliverers, the judges. Some of the judges were pretty unsavory characters. And so the theme of this whole book of Judges is the same theme we see played out in Samson's life, that sin is vile, sin can be ruinous, but God will ultimately redeem those who trust in him, his people. 
and he'll deliver them from any kind of threat, any kind of calamity, even from the destruction they bring on themselves because of their sin. And we see that repeatedly in this book of Judges. There's a distinct pattern to the way events unfold in the book of the Judges. Of Judges. There are seven cycles of apostasy and revival described in this book. And they follow five steps, the same five steps every time. Here's how the pattern went. There was a period of rest followed by a rebellion. Then there was some divine judgment that fell. Then the people repented, and finally they were restored. And that led to another period of rest followed by rebellion and so on. And so for those of you who like alliteration, it was rest, rebellion, retribution, repentance, and restoration. Over and over again, rest, rebellion, retribution, repentance, restoration. And that cycle is repeated six times completely in the book of Judges. And then the the seventh cycle, the last one, is rest, rebellion, and finally resignation. And the book of Judges ends on a kind of sour note with that verse I quoted just a minute ago, Judges 21-25, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As as you follow those cycles of failure and revival in the book of Judges, you'll notice that when the Lord gives retribution to Israel, when his judgment falls, it always comes in the form of attacks from their enemies. And Israel had lots of enemies, the Mesopotamians, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Amorites, and the Philistines. And the Philistines are the specific enemies God permitted to flourish during the time of Samson. And the Philistines were particularly vicious and persistent enemies. You know of them from your reading of the Old Testament. We first encounter the Philistines back in the book of Genesis. And you still see them still troubling Israel during the time of David and Solomon, and even during the times of the later kings. The Philistines were the original Palestinians. And their approach to conquering was like this. Once they had won a military victory, they would pillage the towns and cities and simply take for themselves anything of value, and then they would enslave whatever people, children, women remained, and eventually they would assimilate those captive people into the Philistine race by intermarrying with them or by making captive women into their concubines. And so they prevailed over their enemies and gained strength at the same time by assimilation. That is, by the way, the exact reason God commanded the Israelites not to marry into the surrounding nations because by intermarrying with pagans, they not only opened the door to let pagan religions dilute the spiritual purity of Israel, but that kind of intermarriage advanced the agenda of the pagan nations. It strengthened them. And in a sense, the threat the Philistines posed is exactly the same kind of threat, if you think about it, this is the very same threat the world poses to the church, which is why worldliness is such a danger. When we embrace the values and the culture of our world, we advance the agenda of the enemy. And this was, by the way, a running theme through the Old Testament. 
It was one of the points of Old Testament law. Israel was to be separate in every regard from the surrounding nations. Did you know the the law prohibited Israelites from even wearing garments that were made of a mixture of fabrics? Deuteronomy 22.11 says, You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. I picked up a tie this morning and looked at it, and, and the first tie I picked up said, 60% wool and 70% wasn't linen, it was uh, silk. And I thought, mm, I'm not going to wear that. <laughs> so, so I put on this pure silk tie this morning. Now really, is that, is that law because there's something inherently unholy about mixed fabrics like polyester? I mean, look, I hate the look and feel of polyester, but, but really it's not exactly the mark of the beast. No one, if I had worn that mixed tie, nobody here would have argued that I need to be put through church discipline, at least not because of that. It's, there's no eternal moral principle that's violated if we wear a garment made of blended fabric. So what was the point of that Old Testament law? It was like most of the dietary laws and the ordinances that governed cleanliness and and ceremonial defilement. It was a symbol of holiness. It was a ceremonial statute that embodied an important lesson about the basic truth that underlies the whole idea of holiness. The people of God are supposed to be separate from the people of the world. Not that we go out of the world, not that we erect barriers between us and the people of the world, but that we don't share their values, their hobbies, their interests, the things that excite them. We have a different uh, set of things we devote our affections to. And in that regard, we're to be separate. And this was a major theme in Moses' law. Listen to Deuteronomy 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 from Deuteronomy 7. This is the law of Moses. He says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction." You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. These are all the accoutrements of their false worship. Destroy all of that stuff for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So, This is the historical context into which Samson appears. He's born into a backslidden nation during one of these cycles of rebellion and spiritual decline. And his parents, who are godly people in the midst of this spiritually declining culture, they dedicate him to the Lord. You can read all about Samson's birth and how his parents dedicated him to the Lord in Judges 13. The story of his birth 
is another fascinating episode in his life. That's not the aspect of Samson's life I want to focus on this morning either. But, but I do want you to just to turn back there for a moment. Look at Judges 13, and I'll point out a few verses that show God's design for Samson's life, which was given clearly to his parents before he was born even. You know, an angel appeared to Samson's mother before he was born, and he told her she's going to bear a son, verse 3. Now look at verses 4 and 5, Judges 13. Therefore, and these are instructions to his mom, Therefore, be careful, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And Samson's mother understood that message. She reports it all to her husband in verse 7. She says, He said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And verse 12, Samson's father meets the angel and asks him to repeat the instructions. Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? Like, he just wants to verify this. And so the angel verifies it for him. Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine. Neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. In other words, Samson is put under this Nazarite vow that begins immediately while he's in the womb, and it's supposed to be a lifelong commitment. As verse 7 says, he is to be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And so his whole life is to be marked by a strict separation from everything evil, everything that is ceremonially unclean, He has to be a teetotaler all his life, and he's under this vow to God. He can't cut his hair. And by the way, I want to review briefly for you what the Nazarite vow meant. This was normally a temporary vow. It would normally be taken for a few weeks or a few months, maybe a couple of years or whatever. The Apostle Paul takes a Nazarite vow at the end of his ministry in Corinth. He's there in Corinth. He takes a Nazarite vow. We don't know, you know why or, or what, but I, I gather it was probably uh, out of gratitude to God for his successful ministry in Corinth. He takes a vow. Acts 18.18 18 describes how... You don't have to turn there, but it describes that he cut his hair at the end of the vow. So this was a Nazarite vow. He didn't cut his hair. Acts 18, 18, the vow is over. He cuts his hair. Normally, that's how it was. The Nazarite vow was temporary. The vow is described for us in Numbers 6, and I do want you to turn there. So keep a marker here in Judges. We haven't even looked at Judges 14 yet, have we? Put a marker there. We will come back to it. But I want you to look for a moment at Numbers 6, and the law of the Nazarite. Number 6, starting at verse 1, it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. 
all the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Let the locks of his head, locks of the hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, he shall make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Now, notice there's three important aspects to this vow. First, no wine. The Nazarite was not supposed to drink wine or anything with vinegar in it, or he's not to eat grapes or to partake of the fruit of the vine in any way. Nothing fermented and not even unfermented grapes. No raisins, no raisin bran. And this was to emphasize sobriety. The one who took this vow must be sober, focused in mind and heart only on his service to the Lord. That's aspect number one. Number two, no razor. The Nazarite had to let his hair grow for as long as he's under the vow. Now, that symbolized his submission. 1 Corinthians 14, you know, talks about how a covered head is a sign of submission. And the Nazarite's unshaven head was symbolic of his utter submission to God. If, If this went on for several months, his hair might grow quite long. And in Samson's case, it's a lifetime vow, so his hair did grow quite long. That's aspect number two. Number three, no touching dead bodies. And that symbolized his separation from anything that would defile. And so you have no wine to signify sobriety, no razor to signify submission, and no cadavers to signify separation, sanctification, segregation from any and everything that is unclean. And all of that underscored how utterly separate the Nazarite was to be from any defiling influences uh, from his surroundings. In fact, while you have your Bibles open to Numbers 6, just scan that passage and notice how many times in those first eight verses the word separate or separation is used. That is the key idea with this vow. It's a vow of separation. The Nazarite was to be set apart unto God. He's to be submitted wholly to God and separated from every kind of worldliness and defilement. That's the whole point of the vow. He's not to touch anything that would defile. Now, with all of that as kind of preliminary, you understand the vow, you understand what kind of life Samson was supposed to live. Let's turn back to Judges 14, and I want to point out to you three serious spiritual blunders Samson made early in his life that ultimately led to his demise. Judges 14, transgression number one, he dishonors his parents, verses one through four. And we pick up Samson's story as he embarks on adulthood. Scripture doesn't tell us anything about Samson's childhood except what we read in Judges 13, verses 24 and 25. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanenadan between 
Zorah and Eshtaol. And so, as a young man, Samson was blessed by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is a regenerate and redeemed person. This is a believer, not an unbeliever. Bear that in mind. And chapter 14 then takes up his story when he's probably in his late teenage years, old enough to marry, and here is where he begins to stumble. Scripture says, verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now let me pause there and point out that what Samson is asking his parents for is sinful. This is a grievous insult against the Lord and against his parents who had raised him in accord with the Lord's instructions to be separate. I already read Deuteronomy 7, which expressly forbids this kind of intermarriage between an Israelite and seven of the surrounding nations. Technically, if you were paying attention when I read from Deuteronomy 7, Philistia isn't expressly named among the seven nations that they were forbidden to marry with. But nevertheless, Samson's actions here are a gross violation of the spirit of God's law. And yet, he is determined to pursue his own will. He's so determined to pursue his will that he scorns and ignores the tender pleas of his parents. Verse 3, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives? Isn't there a nice Jewish girl you could marry? They are appalled at the idea that he would marry a Philistine woman. It went against everything they had ever raised him to be. It utterly dishonored them and the Lord in every way. Now, I want to emphasize at this point that Samson is walking totally by sight, not by faith. And these verses that I read emphasize that point. Verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. He merely saw her. He couldn't have known anything about her other than how attractive he was. He had no relationship with this woman. He merely found her pleasing to look at. And in verse 2, he tells his parents, I have seen a woman, now get her for me to wife. That's the King James, and I like that language. Get her for me to wife. And verse 3, he says to his dad, get her for me, because she looks good to me. That's the New American Standard translation. That is exactly how that, what that phrase means in its literal sense. She looks good to me. Now, I want to say, I have nothing against attractive women. I married one. But it is a sinful tendency for most men to be attracted too easily by external beauty alone. And in Samson's case, that is all he was concerned with. What he knew about this woman, that she was an an enemy of the nation of Israel who worshipped a foreign god, that should have been enough to keep him from wanting her as his wife. But Samson seems to have utterly lacked discernment 
and true holiness in his heart. Here he goes to an ungodly place. What was he doing in the Philistine village in the first place? He chooses an ungodly woman. Verse 11 suggests that he also had ungodly companions. He gives the impression of someone who is utterly careless in all his thoughts, all his behavior, all his associations with other people. Someone with that kind of mindset isn't going to see anything wrong with marrying a pagan whose chief appeal is her good looks. And so the end of verse 3, get her for me. He foolishly rebuffs his parents' wisdom. He is determined to have this woman at all costs. And he basically orders his dad to get this woman for him. By the way, this sort of thing evidently became a kind of a pattern in Samson's behavior. He retained throughout his life a a foolish tendency to choose all the wrong women for all the wrong reasons. And he's always attracted to ungodly women. In fact, before we move away from this point, I want you to see that these verses contain a lesson for us about the sovereignty of God. God had a good purpose even in Samson's sin. Verse 4 intrigues me. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, the antecedent of the pronoun he in the second phrase of that verse is the Lord. It was the Lord who was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. This was not a conscious plan on Samson's part. All Samson is doing here is following his glands. The woman looked good to him, and he wanted to have her as his wife. I once had a conversation with a fairly well-known pastor who wanted to argue that it really wasn't a sin for Samson to marry this Philistine girl because verse 4 says it was from the Lord. But that's like saying... Joseph's brothers didn't really sin when they sold him into slavery in Egypt because God meant it for good. They meant it for evil, and it was therefore a sinful act. And the fact that God can bring good even out of an evil act, and God can use human wickedness to advance his own perfect plan, that doesn't mean God approves of the wickedness. Verse 4 doesn't suggest that God approved of Samson's plan or his behavior here. It doesn't mean that the Lord imposed this behavior on Samson against his will. Samson, and Samson alone, bore the guilt for all the sinful aspects of what he's doing here. God didn't coerce Samson to marry this woman. God didn't move or entice him in any way that makes God, the effectual cause or the agent of Samson's sin. Samson bears the full responsibility for his own sin. His motives were evil. The deed was evil. And nonetheless, God meant it for good. God had a righteous purpose that he would sovereignly fulfill. And in the end, he would ultimately frustrate Samson's evil choice. He would judge the Philistines and discipline Samson in the process of overturning this deed. It's true that God allowed this to happen, and not by a bare permission. It wasn't as if God's sitting back saying, well, okay, if that's what he's going to do, I'll make the best of it. This was God's plan. He wasn't a passive observer in these events. He was sovereignly orchestrating 
all of this so that Samson's sin would ultimately bring about the fulfillment of God's higher plan. And in this case, God's plan involved the judgment of the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over the people of God, verse 4. And it was an unjust dominion, so God's ultimate plan involved a remedy to several injustices including Samson's sin. To the human eye, it might have looked as if Samson is totally out of control here, thwarting the work and the will of God. I'm sure his parents looked at it that way. He's messing up what God planned for him before his birth. His actions were certainly in conflict with the revealed will of God. But God had not lost control. This is how the sovereignty of God works. God had a plan, and God would accomplish his good pleasure even as the fruit of Samson's disobedience. That's the wonder of divine sovereignty. Proverbs 20, verse 24 says, Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. And in Jeremiah 10, 23, Jeremiah prayed like this. He said, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Proverbs 16.1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And Proverbs 16.9, just a few verses later, says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The Lord determines the outcome, and the outcome is always according to God's ultimate plan and desire, and it's for our good and for His glory. Now, it's important to understand this, and so I'll say it once more. God's sovereignty does not make God the author of Samson's sin. The bad moral choice here belongs to Samson. He made this choice freely and without coercion and without any kind of force, but God was nonetheless in complete control of all these events. He always is, working all things after the counsel of his own will, according to Ephesians 1.11. And before we close this morning, I'm going to return to this point about God's sovereignty. But for now, I just want to point out that verse 4 does not suggest that Samson's intention to marry this woman was excusable or justifiable merely because God's purpose in all of this was good. It doesn't make Samson's actions good. God is able to make all things work together for good, And the fact that God was working in the midst of Samson's sinful, compromising marriage is no justification for the marriage itself. This was a sin that dishonored Samson's parents, and it put Samson at odds with the revealed will of God. That was blunder number one we see in this chapter. He dishonored his parents. But he's not finished pursuing his carnal desires. Here's blunder number two. He defiled his person. He defiled his person, verses 5 through 11. First, he sins by choosing the wrong mate. Now he sins further by eating the wrong meal. Let me read verses 5 through 11. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. I don't know if you've ever seen a baby goat, but they're not very big, like a chihuahua, you know, and you could easily rip one. I've never tried it. 
but I've always kind of wanted to. <laughs> anyway, Samson does that with a lion. This is some kind of mountain lion. It's a massive, powerful animal. He tears it like a young goat. And it says he didn't tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. He's a typical guy. You know, if you killed a lion and left it, you know, in the ditch and came back two weeks later, you'd want to see how rotten it was. Guys would anyway. Any guy would. And behold, it says, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. Now that grosses me out. I don't know about you. I've eaten some pretty grotesque things, but I wouldn't scrape honey out of the rotten carcass of a dead animal and eat it. He came to his father and mother and gave some to them. But he did not tell them he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Yeah, duh. I don't think his mom would have been happy with that. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Now, there's no need to spend a lot of time on this point, but I I don't want you to miss the fact that Samson sinned grievously. He broke his vow by eating this honey from the cadaver of a lion. I mean, it's gross enough by itself, but this was also a violation of his vow. Remember the third principle of the Nazarite vow? As a Nazarite, he is not supposed to come into contact with any dead body. And this was such a strict principle for the Nazarite that Scripture even prescribed what to do if a Nazarite is sitting next to somebody and they suddenly die. Listen to this. Number 6. Verses 9 through 11, And if any man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day. Even if somebody accidentally died next to him, that would defile him to the point where he had to bring a sin offering to atone for it. Contact with any dead body was ceremonially defiling in the Old Testament. Listen to Leviticus 5 verse 2. If a soul touch any unclean thing, whether it be a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean cattle or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and if it be hidden from him, that is, even if he's unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. But it was doubly defiling to have contact with the carcass of a beast that was halfway rotten, and this was an unclean beast to begin with. Leviticus eleven twenty six says, Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or who does not chew the cut is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And listen to this. All that walk on their paws, among the animals that go on all fours, all of them are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean. That including a lion. So this contact with a dead, rotten lion corpse was a serious thing. This represented a willful breaking of Samson's lifelong vow, and he did it all to gratify a momentary fleshly hunger. By the way, I pointed out that 
Samson's choice of the wrong wife led to a pattern that was repeated in later years, which ultimately left him vulnerable to the wiles of Delilah, this act of defilement also led to a pattern in his life. You remember the incident in Judges 15 where Samson kills a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass? You ever think about that? What was a Nazarite sworn never to come into contact with any kind of dead body? What was he doing with the jawbone of an ass in the first place? In fact, Judges 15.15 says this was a new jawbone too. So it came from the carcass of a freshly killed donkey. That was again a violation of Samson's Nazarite vow. It seems his wrong choices early on always developed into sinful patterns. He didn't mortify his sins. You getting the picture of Samson as someone who is utterly undisciplined? He can't control his eyes. He can't control his appetite. We're about to see he couldn't control his anger or his mouth either. Having succumbed already to the lust of the eyes in his choice of a wife and the lust of the flesh in eating this defiled honey, he now gives in to the boastful pride of life. Remember, he he dishonored his parents. He defiled his person. Here's mistake number three. He defends his pride, verses 12 through 18. So he chose the wrong mate, he ate the wrong meal, and here he acts with the wrong motives. He's just returned from his wedding with these 30 Philistine men as his companions. The last verse I read to you talks about they gave him these, these companions. He gives, they basically, as a wedding gift, give him 30 Philistine men to be his friends and fellow whatever having debased himself by marrying an enemy of his God, he defiles himself by eating honey that's ceremonially unclean. And now he further disgraces himself by acting in the most fleshly, arrogant manner. We're back in Judges 14. You there? Let me read verses 12 through 18. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you can't tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. So this is just a friendly contest that he proposes with these guys who are now his friends and buddies. And they make a wager for new clothes, basically. Lots of new clothes, a month's worth of changing clothes every day. 30 new garments. This is a lot. And he said to them, here's here's the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is. Or we'll burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Suddenly this becomes serious because they're going to have to come up with all these clothes for Samson. And I imagine he was, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. So he needed extra large size shirts. And this is going to cost them a lot of money and they're angry. And so they threaten his bride. You know, you're one of us. You're a Philistine. Did you bring this guy here to make us poor? And they threaten him. And Samson's wife... Verse 16, wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. 
you've put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father or my mother. Why should I tell you? And she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. In other words, this is the character of their honeymoon. She's crying and whining. And on the seventh day, he's fed up. He told her because she pressed him hard. And then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. He called his wife a heifer. Now, notice what's happening here. This starts out as a lark. He tells them a riddle for fun. He thinks... There's no way they're going to figure out the answer to this riddle, but they outsmarted him, or at least they outconnived him. And what began as a contest of wits among friends turns quickly to a serious conflict, partly because Samson's pride was wounded and he responds in anger. Samson at this point is not a model for us to emulate. Scripture says in James 1.20 that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. This sort of anger is not pleasing to God. It's unrighteous and it's ungodly. And the person in the grip of human anger is acting out of impure motives and therefore cannot possibly do a righteous act. But look at verses 19 and 20. God's will, again, is being done despite Samson's sinful lack of self-control. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ascalon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So in other words, he goes and kills 30 of their people, takes their clothes as the spoil, and gives it to the guy, the guys who he lost the bet to. And so he gets retribution at the same time he's paying off his gambling debt. But, verse 20, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. I'd say that's a pretty disastrous wedding, right? Bad honeymoon, bad result, and the best man ends up with the bride. God sovereignly thwarted Samson's sin and prevented this woman from being his wife, and in the process, he judges the Philistines. And that should have been sufficient discipline to turn Samson away from his sinful, self-destructive pattern. But Samson's lust became a perpetual stumbling block for him. And the, the episode with Delilah then becomes simply a repeat of what happened with this woman. And yet... God's work is accomplished through Samson in spite of himself. Again, God is not the agent of Samson's sin here. God's purposes are righteous. The Philistines deserve this judgment because of the extreme wickedness of their lives, their culture. The the whole thing was horribly depraved. You get a sense of the savagery of the Philistines in a way these men threatened to burn this woman and her father's household. They, you don't think they were kidding or exaggerating. That is exactly the kind of thing the Philistines were notorious for, and that's why their ultimate judgment was just. And part of the plan of God 
even though Samson's motives in killing these 30 Philistines were wrong and tainted with human pride and human anger. So what's the lesson here? God can act sovereignly to bring about His will in the midst of a carnal display of human pride and anger, and yet God is not tainted by the sin. God is pure light in whom there is no darkness at all, and His ways are always right. And even though it's true that a sinful man cannot employ human anger to work the righteousness of God, God Himself can make even the wrath of men to praise Him. And that's exactly what Psalm 76 verse 10 says, "'Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself.'" In other words, God wears the contempt of those who hate Him like a robe of glory. And all the human anger in the world, God ultimately does turn for His own glory. He makes the wrath of man to praise Him. But when Scripture says the wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God, it's saying there's nothing meritorious in human anger such as Samson displays here. Samson deserves no credit and no praise for what he did. God does deserve credit and praise for how he turned it out. And no one can accuse God of injustice when he brings good out of evil because God himself is never the agent or the effectual cause of the evil. Even though God sovereignly uses the evil of his enemies to advance his eternal plan. That's a good thing that God does, not something he's blameworthy for. And Paul considers all of these things and untangles it for us as much as possible. But in the end, even Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now, I need to wrap up. I've been showing you how Samson's wrong choices when he was young typically led to similar problems throughout his life. He struggled with the same sins again and again. Look at his wife's whining attempts to find out the secret of his riddle. That, again, is the same problem Samson had with Delilah. You would think this guy would learn not to tell his secrets to nagging women. And his sinful pride here, as well as his violent anger, these things continued to plague him although God used Samson ultimately in a marvelous way to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Samson didn't escape the consequences of his own sin. As I said, he's not a hero to us because of what he did. What's heroic about him is his faith. As we know, he succumbed to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and he bore the full earthly consequences of all of those sins. Judges 16.21 records what happened to Samson at the end of his life. The Philistines took him, they put out his eyes, they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass, and he did grind in the prison house. He was basically reduced to the role of an animal, walking around and around a grinding stone. Those eyes that had lusted were gouged out. The flesh that had caused him to stumble was bound with fetters of brass, and the pride that had so often troubled him was finally humbled so that he becomes a grinder in the prison house. 
But in the end of his life, even as the Philistines were putting Samson to death, God enabled Samson to perform that greatest feat of strength ever. And he used that tragic situation to bring about the greatest victory of Samson's life. And once again, the great lesson of Samson is this, that God is sovereign and he can use even our most pathetic failures to bring about great victory. And all the credit for the victory goes to him. And all the blame for the failure goes to us. Samson stands as a great illustration of that truth and as a reminder that God is working all things together for good, for our good as well as for his. And even when we fail him, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Ultimately, all of this points us to the gospel by reminding us that we need salvation from our own sin, that God is a redeemer, that God is sovereign over evil, that no one can thwart his purposes, and that he can even use the most sinister evil in the universe to accomplish eternal good. And that is precisely what happened at the crucifixion of Christ. This was the most evil act ever perpetrated by the hands of wicked men. And yet, through the cross of Christ, God himself atoned for our sin. The guilt of others was laid on Christ, and he suffered for it, so that his righteousness might be imputed to those who believe. And those who do believe are granted forgiveness and cleansing and eternal life. In Jesus' own words, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. That's John 5, 24. And that very promise is the reason why, despite his many failures, Samson ends up in the Hebrews 11 hall of faith rather than in the flames of eternal judgment. He believed. He trusted God for deliverance. When he was disciplined, he repented. And although he still bore the earthly consequences of his sin, he was delivered from the eternal judgment that he deserved. And that same promise holds true for you and for me and for anyone who feels the guilt of sin and turns from the love of sin and trusts Jesus as Lord and Savior. Romans ten thirteen. for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, the dying moments of Samson's life are a perfect illustration of that promise. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Judges sixteen twenty eight. then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. And God heard and delivered him, not from the temporal consequences of his sin, but from eternal judgment. He didn't come into judgment, but he passed from death unto life. And if you're with us this morning and you're not a believer, if you don't know whether you've been redeemed, you too can renounce your sin and call on the name of the Lord and claim that promise of salvation. There's no ceremony, no formal prayer you need to learn. You just need to believe in him with a whole heart, confess that you are a hopeless sinner, unable to save yourself, and seek his grace. You can do that right where you sit. Jesus said in Luke 11, 
What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And he urged people to ask for the grace of salvation. He said, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. That's the promise of the gospel. And if that was true for a miserable scoundrel like Samson, it's certainly true for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord, your mercy is infinite and everlasting, and you invite us, you urge us to seek your grace. You invite us to come boldly before the throne of grace, to seek grace in time of need. We are needy sinners, no better, no less prone to failure than Samson. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace and courage and honesty to mortify the deeds of our flesh. We pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>